Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at the Madison Center, and joining us today is Dr. Abe Goldberg, the Executive Director of the Madison Center. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? It's great to be back. Joining us today is Rosemarie Zagari, a distinguished American historian who specializes in the study of early American political history, um, also in women and gender history and global history. She is a university professor, which is the highest ranking at George Mason University and also a professor of history. Welcome, Dr. Zagari. Great to be here. Thank you. Also joining us today is Dr. Kevin Hardwick, who's a professor of history at James Madison University. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Dr. Zagari, I wonder if you could just start our conversation off by telling us a little bit about why you think history is essential to understanding our current moment, and also what is the role of historians in contributing to informing the public about multiple pasts and how we might deal with resulting conflicts in the present? My period of American history, the founding period, is more relevant than ever at this moment because it's a moment of intense political controversy and polarization. It's a moment when uh, people are thinking about and looking toward the U.S. Constitution for guidance, for uh, instruction, and I think it's a, a, a point in our history where we're really challenged to try and understand, you know, what our constitutional norms are, not just the written document itself, but what keeps our, our government and the rule of law alive. And the thing about history is that, um, as a scientist once said, you could turn on a light and not know anything about physics or how that light goes on, but with history, you must understand the past. You have, must have some grasp of the past in order to be able to use it and learn from it. And I think it's just so important that people be reminded or learn for the first time about especially their political past and the founding era in particular. Uh, I was reading some of your articles before we had an opportunity to uh, sit with you this morning. And, and saw something that was actually really interesting, especially as you talk about um, the, the political controversies and the polarization of the founding era and, and how we can maybe use that as instructional for confronting contemporary issues. Um, a, a, a significant difference, as you point out, is that many members of Congress um, did not stay long. Um, this is from um, an article that you wrote several years ago, um, a significant number uh, left voluntarily after serving only one or two terms. Uh, as a result, for many years, Congress had trouble attracting and retaining a stable, committed set of leaders who knew how the institution functioned and understood its unwritten norms. What a difference that is yeah. from today. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to understand how different Congress was in the first days after uh, the new Constitution was approved in 1789 and the new government went into operation. And nobody really knew what they had created. I mean, they were trying to figure it out as they went along. And the state governments had been the locus of power during the previous period from 1776 until 1789. And so to 
to go serve in Congress, you had to go miles away from home in an era when there were very bad roads and when you didn't have even trains or not to mention cars or planes. So you usually went away from your families and it was very difficult to get men of reputation and men of distinction to serve and commit to serve and to stay there. Plus, uh, well, first the, the capital was in New York City and then um, Philadelphia and then finally in 1800 moved to Washington DC, but it was a pit for a long time. <laughs> it was a, literally a swamp, uh, not just figuratively, and, um, and people didn't want to stay there. So the problem then was keeping people. Now we have the kind of the reverse problem where office holders often stay on for many successive terms and almost take as like a given that, you know, this is, this is their job to stay in Congress and don't want to face hard decisions that might result in their re losing reelection. And, um, you know, that's where the question of leadership comes in. And that's where the question of, you know, how our leaders need to make hard decisions. I think that in the, in the 1790s, the people who did serve knew they had a lot of hard decisions to make. So, and the, the thing about the 1790s was, it was also a period of intense, intense political polarization. The first political parties really were at each other's throats in a way that uh, people today would find familiar. They really um, thought that the other was undermining the government, that they alone possessed the right way to govern, and it, it was a very difficult situation. So, um, you know, political polarization isn't new. I guess what, uh, what, what they tried more, I think, than was being open to compromise and being willing to compromise because it was necessary just to get the government off the ground and into operation. I've always been struck by the ability of a government to coerce its citizens. And when a government lacks that ability with any kind of robustness, uh, then it has to function off of compromise because without the cooperation of local citizens, uh, it's not, you're not going to be able to govern. Mm. Yeah, Which, definitely. You know, it leads to disturbing uh, thoughts about the present, since we have a government that's very capable of projecting force. Yeah. Well, and I think what Americans of the 1790s had very much in the forefront of their minds was the power of a standing army and the power of a government that is Britain to to coerce its citizens directly. And you know, we feel that we are removed from that, but um, I think we're in some uncharted territory in terms of the, you know, the amount of uh, citizenry who feel that they can take up arms <laughs> at will and who knows where that will lead. So this is different from the government using force, but the threat of violence is still something that we have to contend with today. In your book, Revolutionary Backlash, um, 
you offer a new understanding of the contributions, particularly of women to American political thought and constitutionalism. And I think that's an understudied and, and is, your book is considered really pathbreaking um, in that regards. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the American Revolution itself as an, as an event played a role um, in creating opportunities for women to participate in politics. Um, and then if you could also talk a little bit about some of the contributions of individual women in that, in that time period. Well, to understand what happened with women during the revolution, you really have to understand that during the colonial period, the, the, that women were basically regarded as political non-entities or ciphers. Um, legally, married women couldn't own property, couldn't vote, couldn't hold public office, and they were expected to be invisible in public situations. And so politics was thought to be a male realm, exclusively male realm, and you know women deferred to their husbands. It was a very hierarchical society. Um, and so, you know, that was regular politics for for decades, centuries, how far back you want to go. And what began to change in the period before the revolution, actually, in about the 10, 10 to 12 years before the revolution in 1776, was that, first of all, women were becoming more literate. They could read and um, were becoming more informed about politics. They, the number of newspapers was also growing and magazines and uh, publications imported from Britain. So women were becoming more aware, generally, of the world around them. And then, uh, beginning in 1765 with the Stamp Act, uh, you really had a new kind of politics emerging, a politics from the bottom up, a politics that was grassroots in nature. And initially, you know, for many years, for over a decade, it was a politics of resistance against Great Britain, initially, again, against taxation without representation, the idea that, you know, Parliament didn't have the right to tax the colonists because the colonists didn't elect any representatives to parliament. And then it spun beyond there. But to protest parliamentary policy policies that developed between 1765 and 1776, political leaders in the various colonies tried to get ordinary people to do a variety of things. They would, you know, meet at Liberty Trees and have speeches. They would um, protest uh, by writing resolutions and send petitions. But one of their most effective tools was the boycott against Great Britain. And there were a series of boycotts after the Stamp Act, after the Townshend Acts, in 1767-8, and after the Coercive Acts in 1774, where colonists pledged not to buy British goods, and some of them pledged not to sell goods to Britain. And this was to hurt uh, the British merchants in particular and the British economy in general. And I mean, this is a very effective and powerful tool. But to make it work, the political leaders in the colonies knew that they needed the support of women. And so women were consumers, and big consumers in the household, and big drivers of purchases and from everything from, from uh, fabric and, and uh, china to tea and uh, silver and other kinds of luxury goods. And so political leaders knew they needed the support of women 
if the boycotts were going to be effective. And beginning with this um, insight, political leaders began to put appeals in newspapers, write poetry to women, write essays. Women were reading this, and women responded by forming their own kinds of uh, political organizations analogous to men's. And so in 1765, there's the Sons of Liberty who protest against British oppression, and you have the Daughters of Liberty. Uh, you have, um, after the, you have the, the Edenton Ladies Tea Party where women got, got together in 1774 in North Carolina and signed an agreement not to import any goods, including their tea, which is, was so, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but tea was really the beverage of choice and it was a real sacrifice. And to give up, you know, their fancy dresses and to wear homespun to wear fabric and dresses that they had made themselves. And women started to realize that they were politically important. Men started to realize it first, I guess, and women came to realize it. And even though they couldn't vote or hold public office, they began to participate in a variety of ways in these protests against Great Britain. Sometimes they went to the Liberty Tree too. Sometimes they um, marched on merchants who were violating the boycott. Um, but most importantly, they didn't buy the goods that would violate the boycott and they tried to enforce it locally among other women. And this was really a kind of bedrock important move that helped make these protests effective. So it's a real kind of politicization of women. It's a radicalization of women. It's a realization that women have a political role to play. And this was a big change from this idea that had been previously held that women were political non-entities. So I think that's the first step. And it's we're still far from voting. We're still far from women holding public office. But this idea of, of women making a, a political contribution and participating in this kind of political activity was the first step. This is the happiest I've ever seen Kevin Hardwick. I want to point <laughs> that out. And, and he's, he's generally a, a happy person, and I've, I've known him now for about two years. And uh, seeing your face during that response um, is, is, is exciting. <laughs> I have learned so much. I've listened to lectures. And so what was in my mind were the earlier lectures that I've heard you deliver and, uh, and connecting to the, the themes that you're talking about here. Yeah, thank you. So we've got a fanboy. Okay, oh, yeah. so... Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> no question. Uh, no, but it's interesting because, I, you know, it's, it, it, when I think about the power of purchasing as a form of political engagement, that's something our students are thinking a lot about now, um, is, especially as more and more corporate entities are taking political position. So it's interesting to kind of see how perhaps a legacy of that still in, in, in some form um, exists today. Yes, I think, yeah, thinking about consumption as uh, a political tool is really important because that's something the individual can control. Obviously, our government can control boycotts or sanctions, but individuals can, you know, make political statements with their individual choices of purchases or non-purchases. So that is important. And I think people often don't necessarily think of it as a political choice, but once you do, I think it changes the way you might spend your money, <laughs> you know. 
um, important step for women becoming involved in the political sphere and something that you know really just happened because it was a grassroots movement this revolution it wasn't just elite political thinkers Thomas Jefferson and uh, even even our wonderful James Madison getting into a room uh, deciding to have a revolution. It was ordinary people making the revolution possible. And even once the fighting began, uh, political leaders realized that they needed the support of women if the men were going to go off to fight or if the sons were going to go off to fight. They wanted the women to encourage this sacrifice and to they wanted to encourage the women, to encourage the men to go. And they knew that women would be bearing a lot more of the burdens on the home front with the men gone. And that was something that was difficult for a lot of women. They really had to take over managing the farms or the businesses or in southern uh, plantations the slaves. And that was very challenging, Re raising the family alone. I mean, it just was a big job. And what's interesting here, once again, is that we see in the written record that men are not taking women for granted. They are acknowledging that women are participating in this indirect way in political activity. I mean, that, that, that this whole idea of the mother's role, the wife's role, is politicized. Mm -hmm. And historians have called this Republican motherhood, or small r Republican motherhood. and I think this too represents a change in the way women's role is viewed and represents a, a move toward an understanding that women, even as wives and mothers, make contributions. And that I think is something that still gets lost today, that you know, you don't have to be protesting on the street to be making a political contribution, but by the way you raise your children, by the values you inculcate, you are shaping the, the citizens of the future. I think another common theme, just hearing your response to this, is, is sort of the the ability of individuals to make a sacrifice yes. during this period, right? Because of wanting change, and I, you know, I wonder to what extent it's become more difficult for people to see. Um, you know, particularly if I think about the middle class, right? Because in, in your history too, in your telling, it is, it's, it's across economic classes, but we're still largely talking about a middle class or, or upper class women, right, in, the, in this story? Um, yeah, probably, and probably more urban than rural. What would you say, Kevin? People connected to heads of households. Yeah. Right, so people, landowner, yeah. landowners, uh -huh. uh, propertied men, uh, and the women in, around them you have to mobilize those people mm -hmm. uh, to get the, to make the revolution effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to mobilize deeper, I guess, into the social too. But it starts, I would think, there. Yes, yes. And 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 so there's more of a willingness um, in that class to to sacrifice. And I wonder well, if let, you let me see put it this way. I think today politicians are reluctant to talk about citizens having to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And I think that's become kind of taboo. And uh, in some ways that's unfortunate because you know citizenship in, was understood to involve duties as well as rights, you know, uh, what you owe to the state, not just what you get from the state. And I think that 
this sense of sacrifice is sometimes a part of doing a duty, and it's not all fun, and it's kind of too bad that that language has dropped out so much of our civic discourse today, in my opinion. Is that in any way related to congressional turnover? I mean, I go back to the first <laughs> question. <laughs> Spoken um, like a political scientist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you're getting at. That that we're, what do you, we're just too comfortable, I think, as a society, uh, right? And we and there's just less. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it goes back to you know there was more of a sense in the founding period of of leadership, you know, and leadership did involve sacrifices. Being a citizen involved sacrifices and. Um, hard choices, and uh, I think I, I don't want to like have a declension narrative where it's all bad today, you know. But I do think right. if you right. contrast the language that was used at the time of the founding with today, there is this difference, and I think that it's good to remind people that sometimes sacrifices are necessary for the larger good. And they talked a lot about that, right, yeah, Kevin, yeah, yeah. about uh, the common good. Quintessential to the, the rhetoric of a commonwealth, right? Yeah. Uh, of a republic. And, and, you know, I think especially in a polarized political environment, you know, it's hard to see a common good. But w they thought that they were all Americans, and that ideal of being an American drove them to make sacrifices and wanted, you know, led them to want to do that even when it was hard. So I think we dropped something out of our, our uh, public responsibility when we don't use that language. And it was hard for a lot of these women. And, you know, you, you asked about famous women. I mean, a lot of the women that I've studied, a woman named Mercy Otis Warren, who was actually a political author, one of the rare women who wrote plays and poems that were published about resistance to Britain, oppression of Britain, British tyranny. Um, you know, in her private letters, she often lamented being left to manage the household and the farm while her husband was off serving in the Massachusetts legislature. Um, they compared themselves to Roman matrons and they tried to buck themselves up by saying, you know, we're like Roman matrons. And of course, Abigail Adams, whom a lot of people have heard of, she too, she actually bore it with a little bit more good humor than Mercy Otis Warren, but um, John Adams was gone from 1775 to 1783 almost. I mean, he was away from home much more than he was at home. And she really, really had to uh, take up the burden. Which amounts to a blurring of, you know, what had been sharply defined gender roles. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, she paid the bills and yeah. she um, invested money, <laughs> bought bonds, U.S. bonds and securities and um, hired help and, and raised the children, which was difficult on your own you know, then or now. So, I and back to my earlier point, I think what's different here in the revolution is that political leaders are realizing that 
you can't just expect this of women, that this is a sacrifice for the polity, for the government, for the, the new United States. And they have these orations and poems and, and newspaper articles that celebrate women's contributions. And so in doing that, make them into political entities, political beings who have agency, not just, you know, the, the, the little woman at home. So that was the positive side of the story. <laughs> Let's talk about the backlash side yeah. for a minute. Yeah. Um, so, so you write about how essentially that that window um, uh, of progress, essentially for for women's participation, closes by about 1828, um, and and the rise of Jacksonian democracy, yeah. um, and women become more of a liability than a strength, um, and that actually their their women's politicization. Um, contributes to the divisive political climate at the time um, that, you know, also contributes to bringing the country to the brink of civil war. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you can, you know, maybe talk about uh, the conservative backlash um, uh, towards women's participation. Um, and then also, you know, what you see in terms of parallels from that moment in time to today. Wow. <laughs> She asks easy questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Just one, one word, right? Uh, one sentence answer. Well, let me give some more background. I think that some historians look at what happened to women during the revolutionary period, and they say there weren't big major changes in women's roles. You know, they didn't, except in New Jersey, get the right to vote. Um, they didn't go into the pro professions in a major way. They weren't, they didn't move outside their, their roles as wives and mothers in a, in a major way. But the changes were more incremental in my view in, in the sense that um, there were some definite movements in the direction of recognizing the need to educate women. And women's literacy, which was already growing, increased exponentially after the revolution and there are, there's the founding of many ladies uh, schools and academies as they called them and a need to, rec to uh, recognizing that women should be educated. Um, so that's one thing. There's also a recognition that um, women, some women at least, you know, like to be interested and involved in politics and uh, have political interests and they called those women female politicians not that they served in office but that's what they called women who were very interested in politics female politicians um, so I think that's the beginning of of a broader trend of women involving themselves at least you know in terms of their own interests in politics and for it no longer being strictly taboo um, I think more generally, what you see, and this happens especially beginning with the French Revolution and then the publication in 1792 of the English woman Mary Wollstonecraft's tome, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. The term rights of woman becomes commonplace during and after the 1790s. And what does that mean in that period? Well, it means something really different than what we mean today. It doesn't mean, you know, 
striking out for the vote or marching for, for equal pay for equal work. But what it does mean is that this is finally on the table, this issue of that women are equal in terms of their natural rights to men. They have the same intellectual capacities. They have the same imagination. They have the same motivation. Um, and that they have the same capacity for achievement. And again, this might seem like small potatoes, but it's very different from what went before. And so it's, it's a move toward equality. And um, it was debated in these public places. What rights should women have? And the idea that women might vote or hold public office was bandied about. And that was actually uh, given impetus or fueled by this actual experiment in New Jersey from 1776 yeah. to 1807 of women actually being allowed to vote. And so that, I think, was an important example of how women could actually be civically engaged, be political citizens on the same terms as men, and the world didn't end, you know? Uh, so I think this was a time, this period, I would say, from 1776 to, it's hard to put an end date, but in the 1820s, let's say, of thinking more broadly and imaginatively and expansively about women's roles and thinking about breaking barriers. Now, having said that, it was always very controversial. And there was always a lot of pushback because there just there was a sense that you're challenging the hierarchy, challenging male patriarchy, challenging the natural order established by God. Um, you know, they called women who involved themselves too much in politics, uh, manly women. They, they even thought that they would take on masculine characteristics. Even the woman I wrote about, the author, Mercy Otis Warren, her husband, who very much admired her literary talents, called her a masculine genius. Yeah. He yeah. said she had a masculine genius. And it's somehow as if these kinds of characteristics, and especially when it came to politics, were gendered male, and that it was an intrusion for women to involve themselves in those activities. So what I would say is that you know the revolution unleashed all sorts of social forces and you know radical ideas that the original founders couldn't control. You know, it, it spun beyond you know ideas of equality and natural rights. They took on meanings that the founding fathers didn't necessarily like. And we know this happened with regard to enslaved people as well. You know, enslaved people started to think, oh, you know, and abolitionists started to think, you know, why, how can we support this system where one group of people holds in bondage in perpetuity another whole group of people? So, you know, these were consequences of the revolution that were unintended, yeah. but I think led to this era of expansive thinking, of experimentation about women's role and rights, and did lead to some important, you know, broadening of women's political participation. But there was pushback, 
And the pushback really became, I think, severe by the 1820s, and there was the rise of what we call separate spheres ideology, and it was a way to sort of uh, thread the needle, I guess, or placate all sides by saying, oh, women are equal, but they're separate but equal to right. men, right. you know? They're equal in their domain of domesticity to men being equal outside the home in the realm of politics and, you know, jobs and everything else, you know? And so this new rhetoric, uh, along with the growing view, and this is how progress does not always go in a straight line toward more progress, a rise of what we would call biological essentialism, that women's bodies themselves disqualified them for certain public positions in government or politics or, or outside the home in jobs. And that's actually different from what went before, where you know there was a sense of hierarchy, but not a sense that women were inherently inferior. So that's the backlash, and that's, you know, more generally what I'd say is I think it happens in a lot of times and places after periods of very rapid change, and that's the revolution. That's what we had in the United States after the 1960s. I think we're probably still in a period of backlash, but there are countervailing forces, you know, that are pushing against that, but it's, you can't assume that societies are always going to move in the direction of an expansion of individual or group roles and rights. Back at the very beginning of the conversation, we were talking about the relevance of history yeah. right, to contemporary affairs. And it seems to me, I, I was thinking of an essay I was reading last night uh, by a woman named Judith Sargent Murray. Uh. Um, yeah, no coincidence that. Uh, and uh, uh, the degree to which she mobilizes 18th century ideas uh, of liberalism, right, uh, that it's, uh, and of uh, psychology about what the, the, how do you think about, conceptualize what it means to be a human being and what are the human faculties. Uh, and, um, and she's really articulate on those things. Uh, but she's arguing, right, that women have the, the right, uh, have the, the competence to be self-directing, to be a self-governing, uh, which is a concept that you know, emerges out of 18th century liberalism. Uh, and, and to my mind, anyway, that that's, makes the case for, you know, this is the moment in time where these kinds of ideas really become embedded and then what we're fighting about afterwards is what do the ideas mean? Yes. And in, yes. Unless you can mobilize those ideas, right, right, and, and use them to solve whatever problems you're trying to deal with in the present, you can't be effective in politics. Right. I'm going to shut up. And, so you know, that life. actually leads exactly to the last question that I was going to ask, which is, um, um, you know, what can the current movements for women's rights learn from these previous movements and from the early American history um, about how to effectively approach engagement in, in politics and the political system. Yeah. I mean, I think the most important lesson is participation. I mean, I think it's that every person counts and it's so easy because 
there are so many of us to think our vote doesn't count or our, our volunteering doesn't count, but it does. And you know, the individual can make a difference. And if individuals give up, then they're really ceding their power to a majority that they may or may not agree with. And so, you know, I think really appreciating the gift we have with self-government. And again, that's just something we take so much for granted and something by studying the past, to get back to that theme, you know, if you study the past, you understand that what, what we have in terms of a representative government, a democracy, participatory government, is not something that people had in the past. It's something they fought for. It's something that can also decay or decline or go away. And we have to be ready to, you know, support it and to make sure that we understand it so that we can make our contribution. So I think that that mobilization part is the part that makes me most excited and presents the most direct connection between the past and the present. I think that, you know, women in the past, uh, were in the period I study, were just beginning to get a sense of themselves as, you know, as actors in the political sphere. But we are the beneficiaries of the 200 years and, you know, women and men today can, can move beyond what they did and, and make something good from, from the beginnings that they offered us. Well, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, so much for 30 minutes. Yeah, I know. If the lesson is, is participation, which is an important lesson, um, and being active and not ceding our power, you know, we're, ha we're having this conversation um, from within the walls of a university right now. What is, the, and we think about, you know, even the role of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement, where we talk a lot about being an active participant in civic life, but we also talk a lot about acquiring knowledge and developing skills. Can you speak to the role of education and, and, and to the role of learning in, 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 in this conversation, both as it pertained um, to the early republic and to today? I mean, the insight of founders of our country was that if you're going to have a Republican form of government that is a, a self, a representative democracy, the people have to be educated. Yeah. They have to be educated. So in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, they set aside a plot of land for schools um, throughout our history. You know, the government, federal government has supported the founding of land-grant universities. Um, and, and that, you know, it depends on us to inform ourselves. And I think in an era of, of too much information, it's, it's not just reading, it's reading critically and knowing what you're reading, getting and making sure that the sources you're reading are, are legitimate and authoritative, or at the very least taking account the bias of the source that you're reading and trying to account for that. And I think education, higher education in particular, allows you to learn to think critically and read critically, not to mention, know the substance and content of our past. But I think, you know, um, there's also been, I think, an attack on 
expertise and authority. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think that that whole thrust of anti-elitism is not the same as advocating equality. That is, you know, some people really do know more things than others, and they can verify them. And, you know, this, this is the legacy of the 18th century Enlightenment, that, you know, we look to certain facts, and there can be disagreements, but we try to marshal the facts, and that, that you form a persuasive argument one on, and make your case on one side or the other, but, you know, not to just dismiss our, uh, 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 authorities as elitist or, you know, to dismiss what is given from a certain, certain sources as fake news just because you don't like the source. It's, it's just really important to, to, to think critically and read widely and to realize that you can learn these things and higher education is the basis for, for honing those skills. So, and again, back to the founding era, I, I think when you, we shifted from a monarchy where the, the king was the protector the ultimate protector of the people's liberties, to self-government. That was the place at which it was said, then we have to educate all the people. We need an educated citizenry. And without that, the future of our country is in danger. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? <laughs> <laughs> I'd make everybody live in a non-democracy for a week. I, I, I think right. <laughs> we have not had that answer yet. <laughs> I think that Americans take their rights and privileges for granted, and I think they don't appreciate what they have and how much they need to do to preserve what we have in terms of our government, in terms of our economy, in terms of our social fabric, and I think that you know, understanding the conditions under which even people today live where people don't have rights, where you could be killed for being in the opposition, puts things in perspective in a way that nothing else can. Dr. Zagari, thank you so very much for joining us today on Democracy Matters. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.